Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30-minute update on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Thursday, the 11th of January. Coming up on the program, chaos in the payment of support grants. South Africa's genocide case against Israel is now underway. Our massive visa backlog problem is going to court a waste of time. Will NHI accelerate the medical brain drain in South Africa? And tougher anti-RAND manipulation laws are being called for. week after the payment date for the child support grant, many recipients, we understand, have still not received their money for the month of January. The South African Social Security Agency, we know it better as SASA, is denying there's anything exceptional about the payment run. It says that grants are suspended every month for recipients who fail bank verification or who are declared dead by the Department of Home Affairs. Watching that situation closely and leading the program for us today, Elizabeth Raiters from the organization Pay the Grants. Elizabeth, a warm welcome to you. What is the position right now? Has there been any change? Good afternoon, Jeremy. Um, Unfortunately, there has been no change. Uh, The beneficiaries have not received any money yet. Uh, SASA has informed us currently that they will only receive double payment in February. And how many people have been affected? The total amount of people is 150,000 beneficiaries. So can you just imagine 150,000 beneficiaries cannot provide any food for their kids, cannot provide any stationery, schools are opening, cannot uh, do anything right now as we are in the most difficult month of the year, which is January. So the reason that the Department of Home Affairs has provided is that grants are suspended every month for recipients who fail bank verification process. Do you buy that? No, Jeremy. I, unfortunately, it's I don't buy that because I work on a daily basis with beneficiaries. So I would have heard or come across those issues like in previous months, but I have not. So this means this was deliberately done from SASA, and I would really not know why. And the worst thing about this thing, Jeremy, the suspension of these grants is that none of these beneficiaries by law received any notification from SASA. Elizabeth, you were telling us that there has been no communication from SASA on this particular issue. That's extraordinary. Jeremy, I actually was in conversation with Brenton, the manager from SASA, where he just affirmed to me that these beneficiaries will be receiving double payment in February. You say to me that this has been deliberately done, your words, uh, by SASA. What do you mean by that and why would they have done that, do you think? Jeremy, if they had followed the proper route, they would have given these beneficiaries notifications. I made it an effort to go to my local SASA office uh, with about 100 beneficiaries just to go find out why their grants were suspended. 
and the reasons that they gave did not make sense to me. For instance, if your identity document had two names on and your bank statement only had one name on, your grant was suspended. So, but your identity number is the same, everything is the same, it's just that your bank statement didn't have both names. So what do you think the real problem is? Uh, I don't know. I, I cannot say anything on it what the problem is really because that's actually only affected uh, beneficiaries that was receiving their grants in bank accounts and if there was a review even with surnames or addresses or anything it would have affected the gold card members as well are there any legal or advocacy efforts that are underway right now to ensure the rights and welfare of the people that have been affected by this uh, not that I know of currently, but I do know Peter Grant has been speaking out about this since it happened last week, Friday, and we've been endlessly trying to get Sasa to do a manual payment to these beneficiaries because they are capable of doing this manual payment. Because this is not the fault of the beneficiaries and the suspension was unlawful as well. So we are really appealing to Sasa to really pay these beneficiaries out manually. And when you put that to SASA and ask for the manual payment, what do they tell you? Uh, they told me, unfortunately, these beneficiaries have to wait. The only two options that's available is that they can actually apply for the emergency SRD grant for January, and they will then subtract that amount of money when they receive their payment in February, or they can apply for food vouchers, uh, and then that amount of money will also sub- be subtracted in February. So, but I still don't understand why does the beneficiary have to go this route when Sasa is able to make immediate manual payments. And as you say, this delayed payment is adversely affecting the daily lives of the beneficiaries, particularly the elderly. Yes, definitely. I do also know of some um, elderly that haven't received a grant for the past four months that has gone to Sasa's offices numerous times. Now, if you are 63-year-old or 65-year-old and you're depending on your all-age grant and for four months you have not received your grant, how does Sasa expect this old person to survive? MoneyWeb at midday will reach out to the South African Social Security Agency, Elizabeth Reiters, from Pay the Grants. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at midday. Today, the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, is holding a hearing in a case brought by South Africa against Israel. South Africa has accused the country of violating the 1948 Genocide Convention in its bombardment and siege of Gaza. I'm in conversation now with human rights and international law expert Magnus Gelanda. Uh, And firstly, does this all then come down to what the definition of genocide is? So it is eventually, uh, but I think it's more coming down to that by the time we reach a final judgment, which might be a decade from now. Um, Now we're dealing with provisional measures and South Africa needs to make a plausible uh, case that the acts of Israel uh, falls within the scope of the Genocide Convention. Uh, Of course, it will be 
discussed, but the core of like the merits of the judgment will be de- decided at the later stage. Mm. How difficult is it for South Africa to make that uh, plausible case, as you put it? I think given the ICJ's precedent, I mean, they've had uh, other uh, cases under the Genocide Convention. The first one was brought by Bosnia against Yugoslavia in 1993, and then we have more uh, recent cases, Gambia against uh, Myanmar, brought again in, in, in 2019, and then Ukraine against Russia in, in 2022. And if one look at those precedents where there were issued provisional measures in all those in all those cases, I think South Africa has quite a strong case, uh, at least on the provisional measures. If the ICJ rules in favour of South Africa, the question that I'm hearing is one of enforcement. That's going to be a lot more difficult, isn't it? No, no, for sure. I mean, if I take the case Ukraine brought against Russia, then the provisional measures included that Russia should withdraw from Ukraine, which obviously hasn't happened. So uh, in international law in in, in general, I mean, in national law as well, uh, it's uh, enforcement is a is a big challenge. And Israel, I guess, have made some statements. I mean, I guess we'll hear more uh, more tomorrow when it's, uh, it's Israel's turn to make their arguments. But um, they have made some statements in, in relation to that, well, they would like the motion to be dismissed. But I mean, if the ICDA issues provisional measures, then they would just ignore them. How difficult is it going to be for Israel to defend this? I guess we'll have to see what you know, arguments they come up with. But uh, I mean, obviously, the situation on the ground makes it a little bit difficult for them to make those arguments. But I guess it will probably be ba- first. They will have these arguments like, "Oh uh, no, but uh, we, uh, how how can you accuse us of genocide?" That, they don't really make make sense. Then they would have arguments like, uh, "We give notice before we uh, attack areas. We have uh, allowed relief." Uh, I mean. I guess to say that we, there might have been some instances, but it doesn't reach the threshold for uh, to uh, for provisional measures to be imposed. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll have to wait until tomorrow to hear what they actually say. Whichever way this case goes, is there going to be any kind of impact on international relations and broader geopolitical dynamics in the region? I would think so. Um, I mean. Obviously, I mean, there's been a lot of like uh, statements by the United Nations, various bodies, General Assembly, various special procedures and so forth. This just add another element of that the main judicial organ uh, of the UN would make these statements. I mean, of course, the world is so divided on this issue, um, just as they are to other geopolitical conflicts. So what role this will play uh, is in, in, in practice is, I guess, difficult to, uh, to, to to say. I guess if we go back to the Ukraine uh, versus Russia case, I guess there's not so many people that make reference to the provisional measures case in that case anymore because I mean, they're just ignored. In reference then to the United States and given its condemnation of South Africa in bringing this case forward, I'm assuming that, that this is politically risky for South Africa, isn't it? So, I mean, obviously, South Africa has an economic interest in being friends with uh, the U.S. and European states and so forth. But I guess the U.S.A. is the ones that have taken most strongly opposed the case after, uh, I mean, apart from Israel itself, those alliances are. I mean, I guess it comes with a certain risk, but at the same time, I guess sometimes one need to take certain uh, certain stances. uh, And I mean... It it's, uh, should be quite clear what South Africa's position uh, is in this issue, uh, and this is just in line with that. Magnus Dekelander, thank you very much for joining me. Money Web at Midday. 
for all your up-to-date stories. Now, financial services watchers are today calling for South Africa to enact tougher competition laws following the dismissal of cases against some of the 28 banks that were accused of manipulating the RAND. Harry Schertzer is Chief Executive Officer of Future Forex, and he's going to weigh in now with some thoughts. And firstly, how then does this recent ruling affect, in your opinion, the integrity of the financial markets? Hi, Jeremy. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you and say that the banks were cleared because they've done nothing wrong here. And our South African banks are basically uh, completely innocent. However, when digging a bit further into the Competition Appeals Court's ruling, we noticed that the reason for the acquittance of these major banks being FNB, Standard Bank and Nedbank was more to do with the incompetence of the competitions commission that were unable to get a case off the ground. So really, it's not that our banks were seen as not guilty, but rather there wasn't enough evidence portrayed by the competitions commission to prove them guilty, um, which shows more about the regulatory oversight in this country um, than it does about the goodness of our major banks. So you would be convinced there was a case to answer for? I'd be very surprised if there wasn't, Jeremy. So what then needs to change in terms of better competency? And perhaps also, Harry, do we need any re-examination of competition laws in this respect? Yeah, Jeremy, what's happened is back in 2016, the crime of collusion became a criminal offense. And so what ended up happening is that because it was now a criminal offense, these major companies like the major banks and companies in the past have thrown huge amounts of resources behind defending their case, knowing that their directors and shareholders can sometimes be held liable should they have known about it in a criminal capacity. So what's happened is in an attempt to create a deterrent for collusion, it's kind of, it's quite ironic. It's, it's done the opposite. What's happened is these companies have been more likely to partake in collusion and simply throw a ton of legal resources behind themselves and are often acquitted as a result because of the lack of competency of our competitions commission. So if we really want to rid ourselves of collusion from the highest level, what we need to do is make sure that we start setting precedents of winning these cases. And that starts with a higher level of quality from our competitions commission than what's currently available. You talk about competency within the competitions commission. Amplify that for me. Where is the deficiency? Well, let's take this case as an example. There was collusion by the major banks and the competitions commission weren't the ones to pick that up. And this collusion happened around the South African RAND. So you would think if anyone were to identify that, it would be our government. But no, it was identified by the US uh, Department of Justice who basically said, right, we're going to try these international banks who were involved in manipulation of the RAND. And then the Competitions Commission sort of realized, oh, if they're trying the the international banks um, on something like this, we should be looking at our major local banks to, to try them as well. So we almost piggybacked on the US. And it just shows the levels of difference in regulatory authority, where the US Department of Justice not only found this collusion, but has since had a small fine paid by Standard Chartered, who admitted wrongdoing, and continues to try other banks, whereas the South African major banks have been acquitted, uh, three of the four that were involved have been acquitted almost immediately due to how poorly our Competitions Commission handled this, 
in contrast to the U.S. Department of Justice, who are going to probably get tons of fines paid by banks and wrongdoing admitted. So you can just see the huge levels of differences in regulatory authority where American companies are scared of their authority, as they should be if they do something wrong. And our uh, local companies aren't as scared and know that we can get off if we just fight it enough and ensure that, uh, that yeah, we, we put enough resources into it as a company, which is not a good position to be in. It basically allows banks and other companies to do whatever they want. Well, that's exactly what you're saying, that a climate of impunity will continue unless something changes. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. You ne- we need a significant change. And we've seen that uh, the banks, for one, this is not uncommon to banks to to put their own needs ahead of their clients and ahead of the general public. And it's it's amplified by a poor regulatory regime where it's difficult to get the accusations within South Africa and to get uh, guilt admitted by these banks so they can keep doing it as long as they need to. So where do we stand right now as far as the situation is concerned? Do you believe that anything is going to change? I'd like to hope so, Jeremy, but it's highly unlikely. I think... Uh, the Competitions Commission couldn't even get the case off the ground. It's not a matter of it was a tight fought battle and they ended up losing. They couldn't, the Competitions Appeals Court had very poor things to say about them in saying that the case didn't have the legal muster to even get off the ground. So this is, we're far behind where we need to be in this regard. So it's unlikely that any of the banks that have been acquitted will have anything done to them, but that doesn't mean that they weren't guilty of this and and their reputations while remaining intact should really be tested and examined here because I'd be amazed if the local South African currency were being manipulated and none of the local banks had anything to do with it. Harry Schertzer, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. A leaked memo to the Sunday Times newspaper at the weekend from the state's attorney's office to the Department of Home Affairs has raised questions about the latter's growing visa backlog, which reportedly sits at around 95,000 applications. One person who sits in the middle of this debate is the managing director of Expat Web. It's a company that offers immigration audit services. Marissa Jacobs, welcome to you. And firstly, how do you assess the current scale of this backlog problem? Yes, so I mean, there was an article over the weekend that actually says it's at 98,000, so even slightly worse than the number that you started off with. And I think that is the sentiment that's reverberating through the market is lots of frustration around long waiting and just not getting the outcomes quickly. If we, however, take a step back and we look at it a bit more granular, um, which I don't think anyone is doing at this stage, and breaking it down and going, well, well, what are these visa applications? What is it that guys are waiting for? And if we use the ZDP guys as an example, I mean, we know there was 178,000 ZDP holders that were invited to apply for mainstream visas. So how many of these 95,000 applications aren't guys who are married to South African spouses who've applied for spousal visas, um, who've applied for study visas, who have applied for waivers to transition over to work visas? So I think there's a large portion of those applications that is actually ZDP nationals who are regularizing their status through to a mainstream visa. Yeah, so I think from a granular level, we must also sympathise with the fact that there is an influx of applications that's something completely different. I I acknowledge that, but you will concede, though, that uh, we still do have a problem, though, that uh, we have to get rid of this backlog because it has all sorts of implications in terms of the importation of skills and, and economic growth. 
No doubt, no doubt, absolutely. It's a massive problem, and it, and it's one that I think that I think is top of the agenda for the Department of Home Affairs, and something that they have to address with speed in order to make sure that we've got economic stability in the year to come. So we have something now, uh, Marissa, called the Backlog Eradication Plan, which are measures outlined by the Department of Home Affairs. What can you tell us about that, and uh, could this resolve the problem? So what we are seeing in terms of, from a practical perspective is that new applications that are coming in that are for work visas, for business visas, for those categories of visas that add to the economic growth, we are definitely seeing that there's a different team that is dealing with those applications and we're seeing those applications dealt with at a really much faster pace than we see. We, we most certainly aren't seeing the 48 weeks that, that in one of the press articles claimed. So that means that, I mean, we probably have the last 10 visas, since an example, work visas that were submitted in South Africa is coming out sort of within four to six weeks, you seeing your visa issued. So that's a separate task team that deals with that. And then the backlog eradication project is then a separate task team within the Department of Home Affairs that is just dealing with backlog, that is just looking at those old pending applications and how do we work through those so that those applicants start to see their outcomes. But it's still going to take a long time to clear. I think it's going to take an extremely long time to clear. We will will remember when when we first had a backlog number, the minister gave us a, a estimated date by when he thought that that backlog would be cleared. We are not hearing such predictions of dates anymore because I think they are realizing the magnitude of the problem and putting a time frame to it is extremely difficult because of course day by day new applications come in and that backlog gets greater and greater by the day. When your organisation talks to companies that are caught in the middle of this, in other words, those who need to bring in or import the skills, what are they telling you? Our advice to companies who need to bring in skills is that you have to have a completely proactive approach. You cannot be in a position where you are submitting an application, crossing your fingers and hoping that yours is going to go better. You need to be very clear on where is your submission place? Is it abroad at an embassy or is it in South Africa? If it's abroad at an embassy, which embassy is it at and what is that embassy's timelines looking like? And then you, what, what we do is we submit what we call a legally well-prepared applications so that if your application goes a day over normal processing time, which is between four to eight weeks for an embassy if you're bringing in a new skill, if it goes a day over that, you must be ready to escalate it formally to explain to the department what the urgency of this matter is and to make sure you don't get caught in the backlog. We have an extremely good approach in terms of that and you can always push it forward in that way. Just finally, is it a waste of time going to court given that often decisions made by the court are simply ignored? Definitely not. It is an absolute worthwhile exercise to go to court where you've got real urgency and where the department ignores the court order, you have to take that extra step to go contempt of court and then they are in a position where they can't ignore the court order anymore. Marissa Jacobs, thank you very much for joining me. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, you'll be aware that the NHI bill has been presented to President Ramaphosa. However, many in the health sector believe that its impact long-term is going to present a huge threat to the health uh, environment. 
Already the Health Funders Association has petitioned to withhold the assent of the bill and is prepared to take the matter to the Constitutional Court. I want to give you a view now from Raisa Khan, who teaches healthcare management at the business school Mancosa. She joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And your concern, I understand, would be the increasing threat of a brain drain. So we know that medical brain drain, particularly in South Africa, um, has been happening since, I would say, the start of 2012. But recently, due to the NHI implementation, I think we as a country face these concerns. So from what I've been reading and researching, there's a sense of distrust and also a sense of fear that is seen from healthcare professionals and different boards as well due to the implementation of the NHI. And I would say this is due to the gaps from the scheme. So a lot of uncertainty is there regarding the NHI implementation. And this leaves the healthcare professionals uncertain about their future in terms of their career, as well as the quality of life in the country due to other socioeconomic factors. But as you rightly say, this has been going on for some time. Your contention is that uh, once the NHI is implemented, and let's uh, be absolutely clear, it still needs to be signed off by uh, the president's office, uh, this situation would uh, would exacerbate. Um, correct. So, yes, it hasn't been signed off yet, but I believe that the concerns raised by different bodies and healthcare professionals has also not been addressed. So the sense of fear. So if you are giving us the answers that we need, how will the NHI work? Who will it affect? How is it going to affect uh, probably in the way we pay tax? Uh, For example, that is a big concern. Where is the funding going to come from? I feel that if these issues are addressed, this would put us in a better position to believe that the NHI will work in our country. And Raisa, do you believe that this brain drain would uh, occur across all sectors in the medical profession? Yes, I believe so. So if we look at globalization, I mean, there's a global demand for healthcare workers, especially uh, post-COVID-19. So let's take a hospital, for example. It's specialists, it's nurses, it's doctors, it's an IT team, it's managers. So it affects a whole range of uh, skilled professionals, not just your medical professionals that will be concerned in this uh, brain drain or medical brain drain in this instance. And I'd be correct in saying that this impact would probably be mostly felt in public sector hospitals. Definitely. So if we look at our healthcare system currently, we have the two-tiered system and uh, majority of it is the public sector where, and then there's 13% which makes up the private sector. But if you look at the healthcare resource allocation or human resource allocation, it's flipped. There's 80% going towards the private and 20% going towards the public. We also have to take into consideration healthcare service delivery in rural areas. I mean, healthcare professionals do not want to work in rural areas any longer because of the um, dire conditions there. So what happens to um, the citizens in these areas? How will they even access um, quality health care or accessible health care for that matter? So what would the impact be if they're unable to do that? I actually read an article recently, and the article was based on the fact that the health healers, so you get these traditional healers. In fact, uh, people are looking towards that direction rather than going out to find a doctor or find a clinic or getting the service that they need from there. So they are using other options because they are desperate. But in terms of service reaching them, I don't think 
they are getting the service that they do need or require. Given the passage of the bill right now and it awaiting signature, do you think it's too late to change anything? I think it's never too late to change anything. And I think my advice would be that we should not stop trying until we have a bill that is, uh, you know, seamless, that is concise, that is transparent. Although people have been trying, uh, professional bodies have been trying, associations have been trying, I understand that the government is still not uh, giving in to their considerations or their concerns, but I feel that we should not stop trying. Finally, Raisa, the difficulty, of course, is trying to find that balance of achieving a goal of universal health coverage with maintaining a high quality health care system in the face of the workforce shortage that we might experience. And that is going to get more and more difficult, isn't it? Oh, no, definitely. So, you know, currently our country has high vacancy rates in the health department. But at the same time, we have a shortage of healthcare workers. So that will definitely tell you there's some issue there, because if we have a shortage and then there's high vacancy rates, it doesn't tie up. So this goes back to the funding issue, the human resource allocation issue, the corruption issue. Um, yeah, those are the factors that play a role in this workforce shortage in our country. Raisa Khan, thank you very much indeed. And just before we sign off, other stories on our radar. German software maker SAP has agreed to pay more than 4 billion rand to settle bribery investigations against it in South Africa and in the United States of America. And new data released today shows that record levels of heat were absorbed last year by Earth's seas, which have been warming year on year for the past decade. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you. Thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.